Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers. Thank you for joining me tonight. I hope you could spend the next hour here with us. If you are joining us for the first time and want more information about our show, please visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com. Also, if you have yet to do so, please visit our YouTube channel, which is called Dead Talk Live. Go ahead and subscribe. If you're there right now, please hit the thumbs up button on this broadcast. Also, don't forget to check out our newly integrated Twitch channel as well. And also, we have a brand new news media site, all based on horror. And that is located at deadtalknews.com. So as you can see, we are expanding, uh, which is keeping me very, 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 very busy. <laughs> That's a lot of varies right there. Let me say hello to some of you guys on Instagram. Want to welcome Freddie. Hanson is waving at us. Ricardo is with us. Marie's, of course, moderating on the YouTube, uh, Twitch, uh, sorry, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, Twitter side. We have Sass who's moderating. We have Singer Chick who's with us. Wilson uh, Khaleesi, of course, is joining us. Gypsy Road is here, and Gypsy, you were getting close to 10,000 subscribers. Did you pass the mark? I hope you did, buddy. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I really do hope. You're getting very close, so you, should, you, you might have passed it already, and if you did, congratulations. Very well deserved, and it's great to have you here with us tonight, uh, Cece Wheezy. It's making it a little funny because I am a little late tonight saying am I watching the national championship game? No, I wished. I wish I could uh, say I've been just kicking back and watching some TV. But with all this new stuff going on, I've been very, very busy from the time I get up till when the sun comes up and I go back to bed. So I hope everyone enjoyed your weekend. It is Monday. We all love Mondays now, don't we? So, yep, Gypsy did surpass 10,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel. So, congratulations to Gypsy Road. Very well deserved. If you haven't checked out his channel yet, it's uh, definitely worth checking out. Gypsy Road on YouTube. Congratulations, buddy, for passing 10,000 subscribers. And I'm sure, as you've noticed, YouTube gave you the biggest gift of them all. As soon as you pass 10,000 subscribers, they just send you an email. That's it. Hey, good job. <laughs> That's all you get is a good job, you know? No wine basket, fruit basket, even a card in the mail. Nope, just an email. A congratulations email on surpassing 10,000 subscribers. So, anyway, it's just numbers. That's all it is. It's just numbers. It's the quality and the content that we put out that matters the most. So, congratulations, buddy. Like I said, you deserve it. You absolutely deserve it. <laughs> he jokingly says, my gift is you. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, let's check what we have on tap for today. We're going to be going over some headlines today. You see how Screen Rant adjusted their screen size to where the article 
is in the middle, but you still have the window covering up most of the space. So I got to scooch over here so you guys can still see me. <laughs> Sorry to the Instagram people. I don't know if I came out of sight. No, nope, I'm still there. All right. Let's read what this has to say. Um, the Walking Dead almost killed off Rick instead of Shane. I find that hard to believe. Uh, we know the show likes to take its drastic turns from the comic book series, but to have them kill off uh, Rick and keep Shane as the new Rick... Uh, I don't see that. I know that John Bernthal did originally audition for the role of Rick Grimes. And I know Andrew Lincoln, I don't know if he only auditioned for Rick or was he up for consideration? I think he was up for consideration for the role of Shane Walsh as well. Uh, but either way... The Walking Dead creator, Robert Kirkman, revealed that he almost made the decision to kill Rick off early in the series instead of Shane. The Walking Dead nearly had a very different beginning to the iconic comic series. The comic book's creator, Robert Kirkman, revealed this week that he considered killing Rick Grimes instead of Shane Walsh early on in its run and explained how he would have made the bold decision. And it was equally as violent as how things actually played out between the two characters. The Walking Dead comic series first debuted back in 2003 with Kirkman working alongside Tony Moore for the first six issues and then, of course, Charlie Adlard came on board to do the graphics from issue seven all the way until the final issue, with the comic being wildly successful, winning multiple Eisner Awards and getting adopted into an uber-popular TV series with multiple spinoffs, video games, novels, and more. The main protagonist, Rick Grimes, nearly made it to the end of the comic book series as he was shockingly killed off in issue 192. However, it could have been a lot sooner if Kirkman went with his alternate plans for the character. Uh, you know, The Walking Dead, The com I gotta say this, The Walking Dead, the comic book series, it was gonna end with Rick dying. It wasn't going to end the way it ended with Carl being the survivor, married to Sophia, and them standing over Rick's grave. For the comic book series to have ended successfully, they really did have to kill Rick off. Uh, they really did. Uh, and I want to apologize. I know we have Facebook viewers. Uh, Facebook is one of our biggest viewing platforms. But I just want to let our Facebook people know that your chats are not coming through tonight for some reason. So I hope you could see me okay. But the Facebook chats are not coming through. So that's why I'm not responding to you guys. So it's not because I'm ignoring you. Uh, Singer Chick writes, they said when they saw Andrew Lincoln's audition tape, 
They knew immediately the part was written for him. He was Rick Grimes. Uh, and he was. <laughs> he was fantastic. He was my favorite character. Uh, let's see. Uh, Gypsy Rides, every show always has 100 different ideas. They always come out down the road after a successful run saying, you know, we were thinking about doing it this way. Sure glad we didn't do it. Uh, Wilson writes and way of saying Coral probably nailed it. Coral, Coral, did you guys see that little uh, bit where all the actors get together and make fun of him for how he just cannot say Carl? And even Andrew got in on it and put the blame on Kirkman. He's like, why couldn't he have named you know him Jason? Instead of coral. Anyway, I don't know if you guys saw that or not. If if not, you guys should should watch that. It's pretty funny. In the uh, reprinted colorized edition of The Walking Dead Deluxe number six, Kirkman wrote about an alternate storyline that would have involved killing Rick instead of Shane. In the comics, Rick kills Shane, his former partner, with the police, but Kirkman said he considered... Shane killing Rick instead, with Carl finding them in the woods just as it was about to happen. Shane wouldn't have seen Carl, and it would create some serious tension throughout the comics. See, now they're sort of contradicting themselves, because earlier on in the article, in this article, they said that he was thinking about doing it for the TV show. Anyway, he wrote that Shane would have been the first big villain of the book. Well, he was the first quote-unquote villain for the TV show. Rather than killing... Um, well, I guess... I'm sorry, I just got a message saying that I'm not live on Facebook. Now, why am I not live on Facebook? Hold on a second, guys. Let me see if I can bring our Facebook people into this. That sucks. Everything is turned on. Try streaming it again. That's why that wasn't getting any responses from the Facebook people. Well, let's see if it comes online here eventually. But it looks like Facebook is having problems on their end. Everything on my end seems to be working just fine. So hopefully whatever it is that they're going through, it will be resolved. Anyway, continuing on. Rather than kill than rather than Carl killing Shane, I considered having Carl find them in the woods just as Shane was killing Rick. That's right. I considered killing Rick Grimes as early as issue number six. Shane wouldn't have known Carl had seen him, so there would have been a lot of tense exchanges between the two of them. Kirkman explained, Shane would have been the first real big villain in the book, and he would have been with the group on the same side as them, the enemy sleeping with the, the enemy sleeping the next tent over. Uh, Gypsy Road writes, I had issues with Facebook today. They couldn't see me, but they could see me, but couldn't hear me. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's not even sending the signal right now. So, 
I'll post this on Facebook later on. I apologize to all the people that view us live. It just seems like Facebook is having issues. The ripple effect of Shane killing off Rick just six issues into The Walking Dead would have been huge. Would Shane become the de facto leader? Would Carl's ultimate mission be to avenge his father? And would he succeed? Would he become the main character of the series? Would the series been as popular and had a television adaption if Rick was killed off? Killing Rick so soon after he awakens in the middle of a zombie apocalypse would be perfectly fitting for the Dark series, but it makes sense why Kirkman went with a different plan. Now, if you have somebody come up to you and ask you, what is this show The Walking Dead about? Okay? Uh... What I would more than likely say, it's about a guy who gets shot, and while he's in a coma for five weeks, the world around him falls apart, and when he wakes up from the coma, he finds the hospital completely abandoned, and the dead are roaming the earth, and there are very, very few living survivors left. You know, if you had to put it all in a nutshell, that's how I would do it, you know? Uh, Kirkman is never afraid to pull the rug from under the reader's feet with shocking decisions and deaths, especially in The Walking Dead. But in this case, he made the right choice and killed Shane off instead of Rick. It's impossible to imagine just how different the story and its adaptations would be if he went through with the alternate plan. Thankfully, The Walking Dead still lives on more than a decade and a half after it first debuted. The comics they're talking about. Because it's been 17, 18. It's in its 18th year since the comic, the first edition of the comic book hit the uh, shelves. Wow. It's been a really, really long time. So, let's see what else we have. Alright, here we go. Back to... This green rant article is actually normal size. So now I can move my window back to where it's supposed to be and not blocking the majority. There we go. Right back to where you belong. All right. I'm sure a lot of us have asked this question. Why did the 1980s have so many damn werewolf movies? I don't know. They were good, too. American Werewolf in London was excellent. Now, American Werewolf in Paris, which did not come out in the 80s, it came out many, many, many years later, it sucked. (laughs) There's no nicer way to put it. It absolutely sucked. Uh, Wilson goes on to say, so they had a change of heart and went with Laurie instead. Um, Singer Chick writes, tell you what, I just don't think I would have fallen in love with The Walking Dead Quite as much if Rick hadn't been the protagonist. Yeah, for us that have watched it now, and for those of us who have read the comic books, it's hard to imagine it, the complete opposite of what we actually got. I know it's very difficult for us to even envision it happening that way. Uh, Sandra Carroll is with us on Instagram. Can uh, anybody will imagine Shane playing Rick's character? I don't think so. No, not after so long. Um, 
uh, sorry, Alyssa on Instagram writes, I have a walking dead room and I love my room. Alyssa, we have, uh, surprisingly, there are a lot of people who have walking dead rooms. Our producer and main moderator, Saz, has a very nice walking dead room with almost every bit of memorabilia from the show that you can imagine. So, anyway, why did the 1980s have so many damn werewolf movies? And uh, the picture, there's a Photoshop image right there. The, the one on the left is Michael J. Fox as Teen Wolf. And the one on the right is from American Werewolf in London. Now, the article says werewolf movies have ebbed and flowed throughout the history of Hollywood, terrifying audiences in one span of time while becoming a bit of a joke in other periods. No other decade, however, so as much lycanthrope action as the 1980s when modern special effects brought a new cutting-edge wave of werewolf movies that revitalized the monster for a modern demographic more exposed to shifting attitudes about sex and honesty and also about physical maturity. That's quite a thoughtful paragraph right there. Um, In a way, the werewolf renaissance of the 1980s was the result of a strange collision of conservative politics and a sexual awakening in American culture. Wow, this who wrote this? I gotta see who wrote this. Andrew Hausman. This guy is going deep. I mean, he is taking just pure, fun werewolf movies, and he's bringing in sex, politics, and everything in between as to why the 1980s saw an explosion in werewolf movies. I got to read what the rest of this, the, the rest of this, I got to see what this guy has to say. Uh, Ronald Reagan was trying to impose traditional values focused on free market ideals and the nuclear family, but pop culture was exploring its sultrier side. Musical artists like Prince and Madonna moaned on the mic about their sensual experiences, while teen sex comedies and erotic thrillers were breaking taboos all across movie theaters. We really kind of got off the topic about werewolves, though, didn't we? Horror movies were likewise involved in this cultural shift, Vampires were inherently sexy. Slashers were murdering those who dared to engage in premarital sex. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's why Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers killed people, is because they were having premarital sex. That was their motivating factor. (laughs) Unreal. Anyway, uh... Carnal Activities and David Cronenberg was delving deep into his psychosexual brand of body horror. An American Werewolf versus The Howling. Which is better? I like them both, but I would have to go with An American Werewolf in London. 
However, werewolves perhaps were best represented in the decade's changes. The monster's transformations reflected the morphing attitudes and outlooks of moviegoers. The werewolf renaissance seemed to coincide almost directly with the start of the decade. The year 1981 alone had a whopping four werewolf films. I was only seven, so I can't really remember. Uh, two of which became bona fide classics and set a bold new standard for the rest of the era and beyond. An American Werewolf in London, directed by John Landis. John Landis also directed Michael Jackson's music video Thriller. Uh, extensively referenced Universal's classic The Wolfman, but the film became the new werewolf golden standard. Joe Dante's The Howling likewise helped launch the lycanthropope craze of the decade. Both of these films are exceptionally notable for their groundbreaking practical effects with Rick Baker's transformation sequence in American Werewolf in London, launching the best makeup category at the Academy Awards. And uh, yeah, that's how stuff was done before the invention of CGI. Uh, Baker, uh, there's a whole special on that sequence where he turns from man to werewolf in American Werewolf in London and how intricate it was. Remember, this is the early 80s. CGI did not exist. Everything was done by makeup guys, special effect guys, working by hand. They're also emblematic of the potential for storytelling diversity in werewolf movies, inspiring later filmmakers to experiment with the concept. An American werewolf in London presented a sympathetic werewolf, an ordinary man whose lycanthropy was a curse, very much in line with Lon Chaney's portrayal of the wolfman. On the other hand, the werewolves and the howling were outright evil, eager to exercise their murderous desires. Beyond their technical achievements, the two classics showed how werewolf movies could speak to an audience at a crossroads of identity who were exposed to a rising social conservatism at the same time as taboos about sex, in effect, puberty were breaking down. Lycanthropy acts as sort of a metaphor for the trauma these characters go through. While sexual experiences precede the beastly transformations, in this way, sexual awakening can be seen as a sort of terrifying but inevitable phenomenon. But it's not always doom and gloom. The lighthearted Teen Wolf, 1985, is campy 80s fun and shows the protagonist's lycanthropy isn't so much a horrifying disease as it is an awkward inconvenience that turns into a rad superpower. Damn. I mean, this guy had some stuff to say in that article. 
he went to places that I never thought of going when I'm talking about either American Werewolf in London, The Howling, or even Teen Wolf for that matter. Uh, but damn, this guy went deep. He put a whole new spin and perspective on those two movies, three movies, if you count um, uh, Teen Wolf. Wasn't expecting that. Definitely wasn't expecting that. All right. Now, I've told you guys before, they're making another Exorcist movie. The original Exorcist was amazing. The second one flat out sucked. The third one with George C. Scott was good. And then they came out with the TV series, which when you first started watching it, you thought it was a completely separate thing from the movie, The Exorcist, until about halfway through the first season that you find out that it's not. It's directly, directly tied into the first movie. Uh, so they are making another one. So let's go ahead and they have a little YouTube video up here. Uh, it's 13 minutes long. We're not going to watch the whole thing. But let's see what they have to say about The Exorcist 4. So let me just bring it down here. All right, let's see what they have to say. How sweet, fresh the horror genre has dozens upon dozens of subgenres. We can be simple and talk about slashers, psychological horrors, the paranormal, or we can be super specific and talk about torture films, cannibalism, neo-monsters. You get the gist. For every film and every subgenre, there is potential for a franchise. But when we get down to The Exorcist, the movie that is widely considered to be the greatest horror film of all time, its sequels never saw success. There's probably about 70 films that have some type of exorcism plot. I, I can think of at least 10 that have the words more. exorcist or exorcism in the title. Way it's more. a subgenre that does well enough, but there's little doubt that these films will ever match the brilliance of the original. After the original storyline was stretched paper thin in its two sequels, it seemed a prequel was in order. I mean, after all, prequels were all the rage in the early 2000s. What? But audiences were confused, to say the least. When the prequel to the greatest... I forgot about the prequel. The prequel was pretty good. Uh, the last uh, 20 minutes of the movie were really scary. Totally forgot about the prequel, where we got to see Father Marin in his days in Africa and how he basically came to be a um, an exorcist. Great movie. Totally forgot about the prequel. Anyway, let's continue horror film of all time came out twice with two different titles it came out with the same star but different casts the exorcist prequel was for some reason two different films 2004's exorcist the beginning and 2005's dominion prequel to the exorcist so god help us we're about to dig into this god is not here today priest why would a studio make two movies that are essentially the same and we're about to figure it out and as we often ask ourselves what the f happened to this horror movie?
The past few years have given us quite a few films that would make any fan of horror proud. We've seen The Nightingale and The Babadook, two films that seem very comfortable in the darker territories, so long as they connect the audience on a human level. Ari Aster made a name for himself with modern classics like Midsummer or Hereditary, with even that drawing comparisons to the 1973 classic The Exorcist. Yet even with those comparisons and their accompanying glowing reviews, Hereditary is considered by many to be eh, overrated. But there was a time that a film was agreed to be the scariest experience ever put to film. After the success of the original, neither William Friedkin or William Peter Blatty showed any interest in returning to the story they created. And by all accounts, they were done. Finished. But just because the director and the writer of a classic don't want to return, <laughs> it doesn't stop Hollywood. We're in the money. On June 17, 1977, Exorcist II The Heretic was released. The reception to the sequel was piss poor, and it's to this day considered to be one of the worst films ever made. Friedkin, director of the original Exorcist himself, described in a 2019 podcast how he found himself watching some of the film in a Technicolor lab. I was over there doing something else, and I said, okay, sure. So I went in the screening room, and I see some guys riding on the back of a bumblebee <laughs> or some fucking thing. It was unreal. And I, oh, and I, I left. It's the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. It's a fucking disgrace. Good thing is that quote didn't quite make it into advertising, but uh, who knows? It might have helped. In an attempt to course correct the disaster that was the sequel, William Peter Blatty returned to the franchise to write and direct The Exorcist 3 in 1990. Adapting a novel he had written as a sequel to the original called Legion, the third installment of the franchise was received slightly better than The Heretic, and while many consider it to be a bit too talky, it did feature genuine scares that rivaled the original, including what is widely considered to be one of the greatest jump scares of Watch all time. This. I remember this. It didn't receive the best reviews when it was released, but uh, you know, like everything else, it has grown more beloved by fans over time. The film had breathed new life into the franchise, but a decade later without a new installment, that new life was being sucked right back out. It was at this point that Warner Brothers felt a new direction was needed if The Exorcist was to stay afloat. And since the original was the most critically acclaimed film out of the three, maybe moving backward in time was the best direction forward. Which brings us to Exorcist 4. The prequel, or prequels. In 2002, John Frankenheimer was hired to direct a prequel to The Exorcist. Yeah, you know what, a prequel actually wasn't a bad idea. This was set up at the beginning of the original film. I mean, the opening scene of The Exorcist has Father Marin at a dig site in Iraq. He sees a statue of a demon that would normally be off-putting to, you know, most people, but it comes across as familiar, which indicates that he's seen the statue or something like it before. Hey, this is an interesting ground to explore, and Frankenheimer had nothing but potential and who can get? Who here remembers the name of the demon that possessed Linda Blair and the Exorcist? Get kudo points if you guys can uh, figure that one out. If you remember it, just chat it in there. Promise ahead of him. Lee Neeson was eyed as the man to play Father Marin and was eventually hired. The production was set to begin in the summer that year. Unfortunately, Frankenheimer also passed away that summer. After the director had passed, the film lost its star as well, and Liam Neeson chose to exit. Paul Schrader, writer of Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and more recently First Reformed, was brought in to direct. Good because job, in addition Saz. to being an incredible Pazuzu. writer, Schrader also happens to direct from time to time. 
He's known for directing Cat People and uh, American Gigolo. Well, you know, directing isn't his strong suit, it's not a weak point either. He's good, he's just an incredible writer. Overall, Schrader is a legend who shouldn't need an explanation or a resume here. Skardsgar was then cast as Father Mirren, and the chips fell into place. Now, Schrader wasn't hired to write the film, just to direct it. Why wouldn't you want Schrader writing is beyond me. But it was written by William Wisher, who is probably best known for co-writing Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And Caleb Carr, who is best known for writing, well, uh, Exorcist 4, unfortunately. So finally in 03, production began in the film, and this is where details get a little muddy. Schrader insists he was faithful to the script that Wisher and Carr had written, and he was nearing the end of production, but for some reason Morgan Creek wasn't happy with the result, especially the manner in which Schrader deconstructed the exorcism itself. In fact, they were happy enough to hold off in releasing it. That's when Rennie Harlan was hired. Now, Harlan has a number of credits to his name, Die Hard 2, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, but last but not least, First, we're gonna seal off this When Harlan was hired, one of his primary jobs was to reintroduce the grotesque components that contributed to the shock value of the original. Compared to The Exorcist, the gore in Schrader's version was actually scaled way, way back. As Schrader wanted to focus more on the dramatic aspects of the story, like the tragic past of Father Marin. So he's hired for basic reshoots in the film, and to, you know, add a little bit of gore. But uh, basic reshoots wasn't um, what Harlan had in mind when taking the job. After all, the man perhaps best known for ripping Samuel L. Jackson in half uh, ain't basic. I said, you know, just a couple of scenes, just a little fix here and there, and then, then we are fine. The end of the process that started with me working on the movie for a few days, uh, I ended up reshooting the entire movie. We reworked the script, became pretty much its own piece that wasn't a, the same story anymore. And we shot the film from the first frame to the last. If Morgan Creek was willing to pay, you know, for just what, three weeks of reshoots to fix a flawed film, why not pay for eight to make an entirely new one? Please understand how unprecedented this is. A director was hired for a basic reshoot and was able to convince the production studio to scrap those plans and instead allow him to make his own movie on their dime. I never knew Morgan Creek clearly thought they were back in the right horse with Harlan. The film was released in 04 under the name Exorcist The Beginning, and unfortunately, but somewhat predictably, the film was a financial and critical failure. After news came out of a whole different film version, horror fans wanted to see the prequel part two, to see exactly what Schrader had worked on. After all, the name Schrader speaks for itself in Hollywood. And with websites doing reports on films in the early 2000s, like Joe Blow's own air on the head doing a set visit for the beginning in 03, Schrader's vision being scrapped became the real story of The Exorcist 4. Fans demanded to see the Schrader cut, much like fan demands for the Snyder cut, eh, just without billboards and unreasonable demands. You get the idea. After some internal discussion, probably about just tossing out a film with a small budget that was near completion, Morgan Creek brought Schrader back to finish what was left of his film. And he actually agreed. And so his vision, his version of the film, was released in limited theaters on video in 2005 under the name Dominion, a prequel to The Exorcist. That is how two films, both prequels to The Exorcist, both written by the same team of writers, both starring Skarsgård, and both telling the origins of Father Marin, were released seven months apart from how each other. How could I not Yet know with so this. many similarities, the films are very different, even if they're telling the same story, which is the story of Father Marin. 
In the beginning, the film opens in an ancient battlefield where tons of people were crucified upside down. Now we cut to Father Marin in 1949, who has decided to stop being a priest after taking part in the massacre of his own congregation during World War II. Now he left all that behind to pursue archaeology, as you often do. He goes on an excavation site where digs have uncovered the ancient relics of a demon. And there he meets Father Francis and Dr. Novak, and the latter is haunted by her experiences in a concentration camp. She witnesses massacres. He is responsible for massacres. Cue the sexual tension. Long, long, very long story short, strange things start Too happening. Light. Dozens of grave sites are empty. Stillborn babies are being covered in maggots. Kids are being attacked by hyenas. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Dr. Novak ends up being possessed. Mirren exercises the demon and becomes a priest again. In Dominion, the film actually starts off with Father Mirren in World War II. Cut to Mirren being an archaeologist, checking out a dig site. He meets Father Francis and the doctor, now named Rachel. Same characters, different actors. The dig site in the area uncovers a church that actually predates Christian missions in the region. And strange things begin happening, including physical changes to a young disabled man in the area named... Chichi? Yes. Fast forward a bit, and he is the one that's possessed. Kind of looking like Buddha. Marin shows up in full priest garb, exercises the demon, and all ends well. Marin becomes a priest again. Listen, we skipped over a lot, it's true. But it's also kind of easy to blur these two films together. Both films show a broken father, Marin, having lost his faith I've after forcefully being complicit Dominion in the horrific war crimes of World War II. In both films, Father Marin regains his faith after overcoming each film's demon. But the differences, the small things, are what make these movies interesting, and horror fans have long debated which of the two they prefer. I didn't say which of the two is the best, because, you know, let's be honest, we all kind of lost with these films. Exorcist The Beginning is rated at a humiliating 10% on Rotten Tomatoes, where Dominion holds a 30%. Way to go, Dominion. You won that round. William Peter Blatty, the writer of The Exorcist and writer-slash-director of The Exorcist 3, is quoted saying, Watching Exorcist The Beginning was his most humiliating professional experience. Estimated budget for the prequel, or both films, was around $80 million. $30 million went to Schrader's version, and about $50 million went to Harlan's. Exorcist The Beginning grossed around $76 million at the box office, while Dominion around 252000 in the U.S. So at least the beginning almost made its money back. But to be fair, Dominion had a very limited release. It's hard to say which is better. Exorcist the beginning definitely dialed up the horror compared to Schrader's version. But Dominion is far more compelling of a story. And in an unbiased observation, it's visually stunning throughout. Morgan Creek wanted so badly for either of these prequels to be not only accepted, but loved by fans of the franchise. Unfortunately, both films fell flat. Which brings us to now. It's been over a decade, which is right on target for Morgan Creek to figure out what they want to do with the franchise. And, surprise to none, Morgan Creek has a reboot of The Exorcist planned for 2021. Now, before you decide to freak out, giving them the benefit of the doubt, it was announced as a reboot, not a remake. So it is possible they could do something very creative, very different with it. Of course, it's also possible they could take a classic and pull an Exorcist 4 with the material. There's already a petition on change.org to prevent that from happening, with a whopping 460 signatures. Translation, get ready for a remake. Hey, thanks for watching our show. Wow, okay. 
I was not expecting to watch that whole thing. Uh, but I never knew that. Okay, I thought uh, Exorcist, the beginning, was the only one. I never heard of a movie called Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist. I got to find out where I can start watching that. Uh, because even though, like you just said, they're very similar, I would really like to see it. I had no idea. None. I don't know how many of you out there knew it, but I'm going to watch it just for the sake of watching it because I am a big Exorcist fan and I definitely want to see it. So, next thing on the list, and we're back to the wonky screen rant window. Let me again move this thing. Okay, back to here. I'll scooch myself over to this side. All right. The Walking Dead, Carl's daughter, has a special name. The Walking Dead has seen many characters come and go over the years, but one in particular was remembered when Carl named his daughter after her. In the Image Comics world, the Walking Dead characters are killed off or zombified at a rate that often makes it feel impossible to be able to name them all. Between the deaths of the original protagonist, Rick Grimes, to the countless others who preceded him to the grave, the zombie apocalypse has not been kind to the remaining survivors of the human race. But at the end of the long-running and extremely popular series, Carl Grimes, Rick's only surviving child, finally steps into the limelight his father always held as a role model and shining beacon of hope for the members of his community and the family he has made for himself. Blessed with a daughter of his own, Carl paid tribute to an important Walking Dead character by giving her a special name that had fans tearing up when it was revealed. Taking place in the surprise final issue, 2019 The Walking Dead number 193 from Robert Kirkman, Charlie Adler, and Cliff Rathburn, the story picks up 25 years after the death of Rick Grimes following the remaining heroes as they navigate a world where they have more or less learned to live with the constant threat of zombie hordes. Living with his wife, Sophia, on Herschel's farm from way back in the beginning of the series, Carl has a daughter and the family are living quiet, happy, a quiet, happy life away from the hustle and bustle of the growing, though quite corrupt, settlements around them. With a zombie threat more of a nuisance than an actual problem to be worried about, every few seconds, unlike Carl's childhood, where death and the clapping set of zombie teeth were around every corner, the decade since Rick's death has given humanity a much-needed break from all the doom and gloom, and it shows feeling safe enough to begin to live somewhat normal life and to start a family of his own. Carl and his daughter are a testament to what he has gone through since the zombie apocalypse started. 
And in the spirit of those trials and tribulations, Carl names his daughter after one of the most important and integral people in his life, his deceased stepmother, Andrea. Yeah. How many of you guys like that or not? Um, for those of you that didn't know, in the comic books, there was no Rashone. It was Rick and Andrea. Uh, pretty soon after Laurie died, uh, Andrea and Rick basically take what Michonne is, was to Rick on the TV show and replace her with Andrea's character. That's what Andrea was to Rick in the comic books. Uh, also, probably why Laurie Holden, who played Andrea, was so pissed when they killed her after three seasons on the TV show. And what turns out to be a perfect callback to a character that was the backbone of what Rick, Carl, and their ragtap group of survivors tried to accomplish in their years and years of, of survival, as well as a badass sniper to boot, Andrea was one of the most well-rounded and fully realized characters in all of The Walking Dead's run. And it, you guys that have just watched the TV show, you're, you're probably saying to yourself, wow, they really did a complete 180 turn when it came to Andrea's character uh, on the TV show compared to the comic books. And they did. They changed that character around so much to where by the time season three came around, they almost left themselves with no other option but to kill the character off. Call it, I don't know, inconsistent writing, bad writing... Andrea's character on the TV series was not very well received. I know I personally felt uh, she was a know-it-all, snobby, uh, opinionated, did not take anyone's advice. It was her way or the highway. Perfect example is when her and Michonne got into Woodbury. Michonne sniffed out what the governor was straight from the beginning she was willing to believe that, you know, he was uh, her prince and fell for him bad. And that totally destroyed any clear objective thinking that she could have made and in the end could have saved a lot of people from dying. After the tragic events that took away both Carl's biological mother and baby sister, because remember, in the comic books, Judith does not make it past birth. Andrea stepped up not only to fill the hole in Rick's shattered heart, but also become the steadfast and strong woman that Carl came to call his stepmom, a bond that clearly affected Carl deeply. So let's just switch that scenario over to the TV show. Let's take Laurie Holden, who played Andrea, and Chandler Riggs, who of course played Carl. Can you see those two characters on, on the TV show having any kind of meaningful relationship? I don't. Uh, Andrea never came across 
as the mom type. Uh, we know in the limit in the limited time that we got to see uh, Amy, her sister, in season one, uh, she was a pushy, know-it-all big sister. God, I can't even imagine how they would have portrayed her on the screen as a mother figure. But anyway, so although Andrea ended up losing her life due to a zombie bite sustained after heroically heroically saving one of their own during a massive zombie horde attack on the settlement known as Alexandria, she was honored years later when Carl bestowed her name on his daughter with Sophia, keeping the legacy of Andrea alive and well for years to come. The Walking Dead is notorious for putting their characters through the ringer, but for once, this ending gave fans something better to hope for, depicting a future Andrea died believing what would come to pass. Uh, Khaleesi writes, she even left Beth to commit suicide. That's right. How can we forget about that? Not only did she leave her to commit suicide, she actually, in a way, encouraged it. Telling her, hey, if you really feel like there's no hope, go for it. Take the, take the way out. Not pissed off everyone around her. Uh, most notably, Maggie. Uh, Maggie, yeah, they never, those two never really had a relationship after that. And Wilson, yep, let's not forget, she, she was an expert marksman in the comic books, but as Wilson on YouTube just pointed out in the TV show, in season two, she shot Daryl in the head, thinking he was a walker. <laughs> and if you remember that scene, she was so proud of herself for hitting what she thought was a walker in the head and then realizing that it was daryl that, that was the one that she shot anyway did not make the best decisions no 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 so before we round out today let me go back to regular size here hold on uh i want us to take a look i found a really cool article on some of the scariest movie trailers that the trailers themselves were actually scarier than the movie was. Which, I put a lot of movies in that category. Okay? Uh, we have less than, we have about seven minutes left. Uh, there's a lot of movies, 22 movies on this list. I just want to go through it and see if there are, uh, any ones i can't believe they put alien on here alien the original by putting it on this list they're saying that the original alien movie was not scary uh the original alien movie besides the fact that it was an amazing movie was very scary uh, the nun i gotta see what they say i i love the nun let's watch this I had a series of visions when I was younger. And after each one ended, the same thought would be stuck in my head. What did you see? 
I saw none. Word of my visions reached the church, and I was asked to accompany a priest to an abbey in Romania. The abbey has a long history. Valak, not all good. What? here. How many of you guys saw the nun? I liked the nun. I didn't think it was a disappointment. Maybe people were having too high of expectations for it, but it's not as good as the Conjuring movies. But I think it's a great uh, spin-off, or if you want to call it a spin-off, an offshoot of the Conjuring universe. Here's another movie on here. I'm just keeping an eye on the time. How many of you guys have heard of or have seen the Mothman prophecies starring uh, Richard Gere? I believe it was Richard Gere uh, back in 2002. If you haven't watched the movie, watch this trailer. Now, this is supposedly inspired by a true story. A lot of this actually did happen in real life. But it's not attributed to the Mothman. <laughs> oh, we were just making sure there was adequate closet space. Good. This house is yours if you want it. We'll take it. Drawing angels. What are you doing here? Somehow between 1 and 2.30, I traveled 400 miles. I've got no memory. Past few months, people have been coming up to me and reporting strange things. Weird lights. Strange phone calls. Hello? Hello, Who is this? What do you do when someone comes into your office and tells you they saw this in their backyard? My wife saw some drew pictures. Just like this. I'll show you this. You know what that is? One day I started hearing voices. The voices became messages. It was right here. All I could see were these two red eyes. I met him. You met him? He said, do not be afraid. Nine and I will die. Nine and I will die. All 99 are believed dead. You're reading my mind, are you? What's in my hand? This isn't just a message, it's a prediction. Something terrible's gonna happen. Earthquakes are going to happen. People you know and love are going to die. And no matter what that voice tells you. You're frightened right now, aren't you? There's nothing. 
So there you guys have it. The Mothman, I agree with Khaleesi. Uh, it was a good movie. And no way is that trailer scarier than the movie. First of all, it's not meant to be a horror movie. It's a thriller. If anything, it's a thriller. And uh, a lot of the events in the movie are absolutely correct and true. That bridge in West Virginia did collapse, even though it was never attributed to a prophecy made by the Mothman. The Mothman is an urban legend that has been passed down for a long, long time right now. I thought the movie was pretty good. It was pretty good. And that climactic ending scene with the bridge... Uh, I really liked it. I liked it. In fact, I don't think that trailer that we just saw did the movie any kind of justice. And it's very rare where the trailer is very weak compared to the movie. Because, you know, they we, we've said this a while. We've said this so many times. You can take the crappiest movie ever, put a trailer together and make it seem just so amazingly awesome. And then when you sit down to actually watch it, you're like, what the hell did I just watch? <laughs> anyway, uh, Khaleesi writes, was it in Virginia? It was West Virginia. It happened in the bridge that connected West Virginia to Ohio. So it's, yeah, it's not Virginia. It's West Virginia and ohio i believe it was the ohio river that the bridge runs over that's where that bridge collapsed and that the bridge did collapse that's 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 the true event that actually did happen in real life anyway guys we are out of time i feel bad for the uh facebook people they, they just never came online today uh which really sucks we have a huge audience on Facebook. I will repost this for them to watch as soon as the live broadcast is over. Hopefully by the time tomorrow comes around, Facebook will have fixed their issues. Don't forget, guys, tomorrow we have special guest Barbara Crampton. Uh, horror Scream Queen is going to be joining us live right here on Dead Talk Live. We're very excited about that. Make sure to tune in. It's going to be an amazing interview. Uh, like I said, I'm just totally stoked. Anyway, guys, till tomorrow, stay safe. Make sure to tune in for the Barbara Crampton interview. Stay safe. I'll see you tomorrow. And always, stay walking. Good night.